One day, a woman wanted to cross a river. Feel that? That slight tension. You already know there's going to be a story. Someone wants something. And whenever we want something, we know, as humans, there's a chance we won't get it. And that possibility, that gap between the object of desire and where we are now, creates tension. And for us, as readers, this is all we want. A woman and a river. If you're not giving us those two things early on, really early on, you're not giving us a reason to read. This is the essence of plot. And there are many women and many rivers. One day, a woman wanted to cross a river. She walked to the bank where the mud was soft and the stones were sharp as knives, and she set her pack down in the long grass, and she watched. She watched how the water creamed through the rocks, where the flow was fast and where the black weeds lay flat and still, and as she watched she lit a pipe and drew in the mud with a long bone. The bone was sharp at one end and dark with blood. She smoked and she drew. What she drew was this. Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer, one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare, cheeky author, dedicated father and erstwhile nervous wreck who somehow manages to find time to squeeze in a bit of the old podcasting. This is a writing advice podcast with two goals, duh. One, to help you get more out of your writing and two, to help you make that writing brilliant. How are you? I hope you're swell or better, and if not, if you're feeling down in the dumps or despondent or flat or just not full of your usual effervescent pep, my aim today is to offer a short respite from the rough seas of your life and perhaps even a soft reset on your mood to see if we can't get you spiralling in an altogether happier direction. And it's not just about boosting your mood. We have got some practical advice as well. Following on from two episodes ago where I presented you with the seven pillars of line editing your novel like a motherfucking laser surgeon. Oh, my name's Tim. I try and write catchy titles that will get my stuff shared. If you haven't heard it, please go and have a listen. It's been one of my most popular episodes yet. Lots of people saying they found a bunch of stuff in there really useful and immediately applicable. Today, I'm going to take you on a quest to slay the three dragons of structure. If the idea of slaying sentient creatures makes you a little squeamish, you're of course at liberty to tame them, befriend them, hire them as mercenaries. The only thing you must do is respect them. Before I begin, a caveat that applies to all advice I give on this podcast, and one I don't often repeat because, well, I hope it goes without saying, and I want to honour your time by crediting you with discernment and not repeating it endlessly. What follows is just my opinion. It's my informed, considered, professional opinion. I'm doing my best, but I'm just one chap, and I hope I'm still growing and learning, meaning my opinions are going to change over the life of this podcast, which is why I've been working hard to get guests on the show and I'm still following some of those up and hopefully in the next couple of months we're going to have some people on. Turns out I don't have quite the uh, cultural cachet that I thought I had getting people on board and also uh, writers are a little bit disorganised, but I'm sure I'm going to get some more people on in a little bit. But what I'm trying to say is please don't ever take anything I say as gospel. Try it out, test it, and if you can't test it, if it's one of those profound-sounding but ultimately undisprovable statements of writing advice that roll off the tongue nicely but improve your writing not one whit, then by all means, ignore it. And the reason I'm saying this is, well, for one, I, I know, I know, I'm just this twat in a box room, but sometimes I forget that people listening take the things I say to heart. And a lot of listeners have been writing to me recently, and it is lovely. 
It really is the best thing. And thank you so much for doing it. Keep doing it. It means so much to me. But I'm in this weird place where for the first time in my life, I'm having to come to terms with the fact that in this specific narrow field of creative writing pedagogy, my words uh, bear a little weight to some people. So if you hear me say, uh, no using adjectives after 5pm and you're like, uh doesn't sound right but it was said by celebrated author tim clare so i'd better hamstring my entire creative practice to fall into compliance with with his increasingly arbitrary diktats please 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 give yourself a break or give me less of one at least perform your own experiments and, and i guess the second reason that i'm saying it is just it's just that i feel a bit of a twat uh, doing a podcast where I'm constantly saying, here's how things are and you should listen to me. You know, I'm I'm trying to contribute to the community by saying these things and saying, I think this might make your writing a bit better, but I don't want to come across like I'm full of myself and think I've got the last word in creative writing. I've put a lot of my life into this stuff. I feel like it's okay for me to talk about it and have an opinion on it, but it is just my opinion and I love to have dissenting voices. If I say stuff that really uh, you disagree with, I'd love to hear from you with some constructive criticism. And, you know, maybe on a future show, I can read some of those emails out and, you know, give other voices. This is one of the reasons why the workshop model has been so popular, apart from the fact it's very easy to set up and teach, is that it's good to have uh, a chorus of opinions because you quickly realise that not everyone reads the same sentence in the same way. Not everyone is looking for the same things in their writing. And I think it's important to have that diversity of voices, diversity of ideology, diversity of paradigms in your creative writing pedagogy. I'm doing my best. I'm not going to constantly preface every episode with uh, hand-wringing apologies about how the fact what I'm saying is probably nonsense. It's pretty informed. You know, a lot of what I'm saying is probably right. But uh, I'm just one voice and I hope I'm adding to the conversation, but I'm not trying to suppress all other speakers. Right. I think I've made myself clear. So, the three dragons of structure. What are their names? So, focusing on structure is something you can do at any stage in the novel writing process, but there's definitely a fertile season wherein you'll get the best yields. I'm going to say that's from around 5,000 to 30,000 words. That's an arbitrary ballpark figure, but yeah, roughly between 5k and 30k when you're writing a novel. You can do it before then. Um, of course, you'll probably have a vague idea of where your story's going, some inciting incidents, and you can do it later in the process. But asking yourself, what kind of story is this and what shape should it take when you've got a bit of text under your belt, a bit of world, a bit of voice, a bit of character, a bit of flavour, but not too much. Asking then, while it's still in this fluid magma state while it can still be moulded and shaped before it's cooled into a lasting monument if you do it then you can get a good read on what the bigger shape might be if you try to try and plan it all out earlier than that you won't know your characters very well and you won't know the world well enough and your outline will probably be a bit formulaic a bit rote i did an interview with um the author Alexander Gordon-Smith. You can go and listen to that. Uh, it's really good. It uh, was at the beginning of this season. He talks about how he gets round that by doing, by asking his characters a load of questions, by writing himself letters from them, doing all these kind of things to get to know his characters. So when he writes a plan, even though he hasn't written any of the book yet, he knows the characters and he knows the world a little bit. So that is another way of getting round it. But that is still... You know, that you're still writing 5,000 odd words to get there. You're just doing it in a different way. It doesn't have to necessarily be of the planned story. 
And you can definitely wait to do this planning, this big kind of mapping of the story until much later. But don't be surprised to discover you've gone radically off track and you have to rewrite a huge chunk of the novel. Take it from me, that is a very painful and difficult and stressful realisation. And a lot of writers are quite capable of noticing it but when they do they'd rather pretend they didn't notice and they continue pushing through in the wrong direction and then they try and use their considerable abilities of craft to paper over the cracks and 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 basically sell something that doesn't have a very good structure and there are a lot of published novels out there that do exactly that look sometimes there's no way around this right you do your best to come up with a shape of a novel and you get to the end of the first draft, you look back and it is not the book you thought it was and you have to do some major restructuring if you want it to be really good. But hopefully, in that first quarter to a third, in this 5,000 to 30k mark, if you stop and think about some of the things I'm about to let you in on, you can save yourself a bit of heartache. Dragon the First. The Promise. Ask yourself this... Does my first page make the reader a promise? And if so, what is it? Notice I say make the reader a promise and not ask the reader a question. Because any page can and will raise questions in the reader's mind. Who the fuck is Dave? Where's this scene happening? Why should I care about any of this? Questions are inevitable, in fact, when you're starting a story because the first sentence comes with very little context apart from the author's name and the title and maybe the blurb if they've read the blurb. So saying, make sure your first page asks a question is pointless. And yet I see that piece of writing advice all the time. Make sure your first page asks a question. You, It will ask dozens. How could it not? What's much, much harder is for your first page to make a clear statement, not a question, an unequivocal statement, a down payment on the reader's continued commitment. Can you give us, in your first page, a promise about what sort of story this is going to be, who it's going to be about, and what sort of rewards it's going to give us? And, if in doubt, give us a character, make them want something, and show us something complicating their getting it. Even if it's a can of kidney beans on a high shelf. You know what? Especially if it's a can of kidney beans on a high shelf. There's something really powerful and awesome and intense about small stakes conflicts that in that moment for that character feel really important. In the novel I was just working on, um, one of the character's founding scenes turns on a wooden comb that they've saved up for and got for themselves that they want to wear in their hair. Uh, And it becomes this cipher that I felt, for me, was really effective in a way that big thematic conflicts... Well, this is the thing, because these these objects, these small conflicts, are always ciphers for something larger. They always end up crowbarring open some bigger issue. Sometimes you drop your toast jam down and it's just the last straw. And this is true of every chapter, every scene within that chapter. Make the reader a promise. What's this scene going to be about? Does it have a mood, a theme? And if in doubt, who does it star? What do they want? And what's in their way? Dragon the second. The pattern. This is the big critter. I think, and some people would disagree with me on this, But I think that plot is subordinate to structure, or rather plot is just 
one form of structure. And it's a cool form and it has power, but you can definitely have a successful novel with lots of structure and not much plot. Conversely, since plot is a form of structure, you can't have a successful novel that has lots of plot and very little structure. And I'm I'm not sure if I've ever read a good structuralist novel. I think a lot of novels that claim to be structuralist are actually just following cliches and structures that they're not conscious of. Like I've read novels with unconventional structure, maybe, that have worked really well, but genuine structurelessness is just tedious, undisciplined, uh, miscellany. In my novel, The Honours, and I'm not citing my own work as the paragon of everything, I'm just using it because I know it. The plot is about this young girl, Delphine, investigating strange goings-on at Aldebaran Hall, and also it's about her desire to save her father, who seems to be unwell. But the structure how the story is conveyed, how all those elements are brought across, is basically modelled on a bat's echolocation. I know that makes me sound like a like a bit of a pretentious twat. Bear with me. So you know how a bat makes clicks, and uh, while an object is far away, it takes a while for the sound to bounce back, but as they get nearer, the clicks come closer and closer together. So in the novel, the prologue and first chapter are nine months apart, The first and second chapters are three months apart. The second and third are one month apart. Then a fortnight, then a week, then a few days, then a day. Until by the end, literally only a few seconds pass between chapters. If you imagine the waveform of that as clicks, you have these peaks spaced out at the beginning, getting exponentially closer until they merge into this blast of sound, which means the thing which has been getting nearer and nearer has finally reached you. Now, I don't mention that structure anywhere in the book explicitly. For a start, it would be an anachronism. The book is set in 1935 and echolocation wasn't fully understood as a concept until 1938. And I don't expect any reader to make that connection. It would be ridiculous. There's not enough evidence in the book for that. And secondly, it would it would make me sound like a pretentious wanker if I tried to make that an explicit connection. It was just a useful mental image that created a pattern for me to hang story beats off of. By the same token, if the pattern you have in your head looks a bit like a terrifying roller coaster, rising tension, action and release. Rising tension, rising tension, action and release. Rising tension, rising tension, rising tension. I'm going to stop doing this bit now because it sounds a bit like I'm explaining porn to a neural network. But if your pattern describes a this series of rises and falls, this building tension and that tension getting popped it's not that the story has anything to do with roller coasters it's not like you're trying to make a thematic link between roller coasters and your story or that you expect the reader to picture roller coasters but thinking of how a roller coaster manages tension building anticipation in the slow ratcheting climbs then releasing it in these great plunging bursts downwards That can be useful for you as an author. It can be a helpful organising principle. And almost any organising principle is permissible as long as it helps you, the author, filter and direct your material. For some conventional summaries of plot, you might like to read um, Robert McKee's book Story or Christopher Brooker's The Seven Basic Plots. They're both on my shelves uh, while I'm writing. Both of those focus on conventional narrative shapes and tend to sand the edges of stories to make them fit the model. Uh, Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces is a really famous one and it's good on the traditional quest narrative. So I hear I've had trouble getting hold of a copy myself. So one popular model that you'll hear lots of people talking about is the three-act structure. Shall I explain it? Oh, go on then. 
Act 1. You establish all the main characters, your story setting and any plot critical concepts or items. This last point is super important. You've probably heard of Chekhov's gun, Chekhov's famous dictum that, quote, if you say in the first chapter that there is a rifle hanging on the wall in the second or third chapter, it absolutely must go off. If it's not going to be fired, it shouldn't be hanging there, end quote. But the flip side of that is it may harm your defence if you do not mention something which you later rely upon in evidence. You can't have a character pull a rifle out of their jacksie when things get hairy without establishing their ability to stow an entire Enfield Enforcer. Thank you very much, Jane's Gun Recognition Guide, up their anus in a previous scene. And of course, special skills are rifles, magic spells are rifles, friends in high places are rifles, the rules of your world are rifles. Anything that your characters rely upon to solve a problem or get themselves out of trouble to reduce that tension, that's a rifle and you need to establish its existence in the first act. Stuff that gets them into trouble, stuff that increases tension you can actually probably get away with one or two instances of that coming out of a clear blue sky. It feels like less of a cheat if the totally unforeshadowed thing makes a protagonist's predicament worse. But it's still far more satisfying if we had some hint that this bad thing was a possibility right from the beginning. So, in Act 1, you get out all your little wooden puppets and scenery you're going to need to stage this production. This model also calls for an inciting incident, something that changes the routine of your main character's world. The inciting incident can happen a short way in, it can happen on the first line with the routine implied later. Then, so the model goes, the protagonist's reaction to the inciting incident leads to a second, more dramatic confrontation, the turning point. And the key difference with the turning point is that it should mark a point of no return. If the inciting incident is a disruption, to the main character's routine, the turning point is a sundering, a break, a final change. So, I better give an example. Let's say um, your story starts with a hero slaying a dragon, and among the dragon's horde, she finds an orb, cobalt blue with a translucent liquid core that churns oddly when she holds it to the light, and she returns home to the Republic, uh, where this traditionalist faction, let's say, uh, jockeying for control of the Senate and there's you know there's very bit of political deadlock and um, this traditionalist faction celebrates her victory and co-opt it as proof that the nation needs a strong military and she realises that this orb she's brought home is the penultimate piece in a doom machine that the faction are going to use to bring back fallen warriors from the land of the dead to rule eternally over the nation so maybe she she listens and she overhears them say that and so on the morning of the parade in her honour instead of marching with them, she sneaks into the vault containing the orb and steals it and runs. Inciting incident, she slays the dragon and finds the orb. Turning point, she turns against her superiors and runs. And that marks the end of Act 1. Act 2 is the escalation. It's usually the most difficult to manage well because it's the least well-defined. But also you have the most freedom. Basically everything that happens here needs to be forcing your protagonist through the conflicts that will make them the person they need to be to prevail in the final climax in Act 3. So, according to the three-act structure, remember I'm laying out the blueprint for one very specific model here, not asserting the rules for all fiction ever, you want the situation in Act 2 to trend worse. One sub-model for this is try-fail cycles. So the protagonist tries to achieve something. They fail. They try another way. They fail. They try a third way. They succeed. Try, fail, try, fail, try, succeed. 
The first attempt establishes the goal. The second attempt establishes the pattern. The third attempt subverts that pattern. If that sounds formulaic, then I agree. It is. But as human beings, we love recognising patterns. That's one of the ways we create meaning. And when a pattern gets broken, that's pleasurable too, because it delivers surprise, novelty. Ooh, the world isn't the way I thought it was. I'd better pay attention. But all of this is only as a rule of thumb, not an immutable law. Remember, failure isn't in and of itself dramatic or interesting. So in our example above, the fleeing dragon slayer has to cross the thunder swamps with the orb in the hope of seeking sanctuary with the mouse folk of Twitchhaven. Now, just to go, okay, she tries and she picks her way through this twisted black trees and some of them are burning from where the swamps are continually ravaged by lightning and the ground gives way and she oh she nearly drowns in the in a bog so she can't get through and and she retreats that's not so interesting she tried she failed now she's got to try something else the story hasn't moved forward what you need to ask is does she succeed and the answer in act two is either no and no but or yes, but. So let's say this is part of a failure. We see her head into the thunder swamps. There are these dark purple clouds, booming thunder. The trail collapses beneath her and she topples into a bog. She loses her pack with her supplies. Oh no, she's trapped and sinking just as she's about to go under. She's dragged out by trolls who tie her up and drag her back to their lair, planning to roast and eat her. Does she cross the swamps and find safety with the mouse folk? No. And she loses her rations and gets captured by trolls. The situation's got worse and the stakes are raised. Alternatively, she heads into the thunder swamp. She topples into a bog and loses her supplies. She tries to pull herself out, but struggling makes her sink deeper. She's just going under when she's dragged out by a troll. But this one turns out to be a hermit, exiled from his tribe by for being born with no eyes. He has exceptional sensitivity to sound, smell and vibration, however, and he warns her that someone is coming and fast. He shows her how to cover herself in mud to disguise her scent and body heat, and whoever it is this pursuer passes, heading rapidly for Twitchhaven. Realising the mousefolk town is no longer safe, she decides, decides to press on towards the Splinter Coast. The troll, who is old and has not long to live, asks to come with her, as he has always wished to smell and hear the sea. Does she cross the swamps and find safety with the mouse folk? No. But she learns something of her pursuers and she makes a new ally. Alternatively, she struggles through the swamp thunder swamps and is ambushed by carnivorous trolls. She finds her sword doesn't harm them, so she flees. Her bag gets ripped from her back lightning blasts the ground around her she manages at last to lure one of the trolls into a bog where it sinks then she counts the thunder and she rams her sword into another tricking it into pursuing her up a tree just as the lightning strikes and it's con the lightning is conducted through the sword and it burns the creature to a pile of ash then she heads on to twitch haven so the chapter ends with a wolf hound sniffing at the edge of a bog and a cloak figure stoops and retrieves one of the protagonist's possessions from the mud. Does she cross the swamps and find safety with the mouse folk? Yes, but she's left a trail that will bring the full force of her pursuers down upon Twitchhaven. And notice in that last example that 
even within that success, there's a mini try-fail cycle. She tries to get through the swamps. Try. Troll stopper. Fail. She attacks them with her sword. Try. Oh, they can regenerate damage. Fail. She tries an alternative means of killing them. Try. She drowns one and immolates another. Success. Now, you could just have her just know that trolls can't be killed by conventional means and proceed straight to the drowning and burning part. But there's a nice, oh, shit moment when she slices through one of their stomachs and the wound just knits back up. And ideally, to fit our try-fail model, you want that failure to have a consequence. So she slashes at the troll's stomach, she fails, and as a result, the troll tears into her shoulder with its filthy claws. Now, she has this infected, painful wound. She needs medical help at Twitchhaven. And if the mouse folk are wary or unfriendly for whatever reason, she's on a timer. And these escalating try-fail cycles can continue however long you want, providing that the situation gets worse, the protagonist gets tested and has to make choices, and that every failure, and indeed every success, has a genuine consequence. Act 2 is where the bulk of character development takes place. Ideally, you want each big try-fail cycle to teach your protagonist something about themselves and what they're capable of, or literally increase what they're capable of, even as their predicament gets worse. So, you know, if they get a magical item, if they learn a new skill, if they gain an ally, that literally increases what they're able to do. Act 2 normally ends with the moment of despair. That's just a term I've made up for it. I'm not sure if that's true. The protagonist makes the wrong decision. The gang split up. The team get knocked out of the competition. Things go wrong in a big way and it looks like it's game over. In Act 3, you bring everything to a head. We get the final confrontation, the climax. So, in the example above, perhaps during her flight, the protagonist learns that the final artefact, the traditionalist faction, need to complete their necro portal, is a peach from the Tree of Death, found across the ocean in the land beyond the end of the world. So she travels there to try and beat them to it, but she ends up distracting the tree's guardian long enough for one of her own party to betray her, kill the guardian, and escape with the peach and the orb. She's taken out, she's left for dead in this distant land, while the baddies head home to triumph. So... For this final act, we need a way for her, through what she's learned, to make some choice, some decision that she could not have taken in Act 1 to resolve this problem. She comes to some understanding, perhaps with the help of her new friends, that sets her on the road to fighting back. And from there, they'd probably, in this case, find a means of uh, hastening back to the Republic, where, of course, the portal is now complete, the coup in full swing, and the ceremony to bring back the glorious dead underway, and she and her allies must find a way to stop it happening, defeat the traditionalists, and restore peace to the Republic. But probably not the status quo, that's important. As we've learned, failures need to have consequences. So hopefully, as she's gone on her journey, she's met different people and perhaps seen how not everyone is served by this current system, this current government that leads the Republic, and this climactic battle will in some way slay the old order and something new will grow from the soil in which it falls. And please don't think I'm saying that this is the model all novels must be built around. I don't want you thinking about your novel now and going, oh shit, I'm not sure I've had a I'm not sure I've had three tri-fail cycles in the second act. I've messed up. Uh, it doesn't just because you're not following this model. It doesn't mean you're failing. Most literary novels don't fit this shape at all, and that's fine. You can use any abstract framework. For example, you could use the Four Seasons, Part One, Blazing Life. 
Part two, decline. Part three, bleakness, darkness, perhaps a strange, cosy solitude. And then part four, a new life, rebirth. That's summer, autumn, winter, spring. That's a thematic conception that need only exist actually in your head and it sounds a bit wanky said out loud like that but that's why a novel isn't just a collection of themes and explanations of what you did it's characters it's story uh, it's, it's it's much more uh, nuanced and interesting than that you don't need to alert the reader to how you're making the sausage or ordering the material it'll feel coherent just like verse written in iambic pentameter has a pleasing flow without listeners necessarily consciously realizing oh this is written in pairs of unstressed and stressed syllables it just creates a sense of order and symmetry that exists almost on a subliminal level and helps guide your reader through give the whole thing a sense of motion and a sense of order and I think that's important and it doesn't matter really what the in some sense the order is arbitrary although old school plot is popular for a reason dragon the third the payoff the key thing about your story's resolution is that it must pay off on the promise whatever that was that you made right back at the beginning what's this story about what rewards are you offering the reader so if you're using for example, the classic three-act structure, it's here that the problem introduced in Act 1 needs to get resolved, or at least there needs to be an attempted resolution. If you're writing a trilogy or a series, it may well be that at the critical point, the protagonist's effort to stop the terrible thing or surmount the big obstacle fails. Or perhaps they surmount the terrible thing, but discover that it's part of an even bigger plot. And that's fine, as long as they learn something, gain something, advance something. It's not, do they succeed? No. It's do they succeed? No. But, or if you're going really dark, no. And, although that's rare. Or indeed, if this is a standalone narrative, yes and, or yes, but. So, with our example from before, our hero returns to the capital, the city's under curfew after the traditionalists. I really should have come up with a word that I could pronounce. The city's under curfew after the traditionalists have seized power... And she sneaks into the heavily guarded old palace where this portal is finally being activated and there's a showdown. Does she succeed in foiling their plans? The answer could be yes. After an intense duel against a cruel sorcerer leading the faction, she ends up using the talents she'd lear she's learned on her journey and the friends she's met along the way to defeat him and break the portal. Yes, she succeeds and peace and order are restored to the Republic. The answer could be yes, but to close the portal as the dead begin to pour through it, she cleaves the peach from the tree of death in two and the stone falls to the ground and begins to push black shoots into the earth. <coughs> she and her friends flee as the palace collapses and an earthquake ravages the old wealthy quarter of the city. A new tree of death has grown from the ruins of the palace. Now a new order, drawn from all over the continent, must work together to rebuild and to protect the tree from those who would misuse its power. Or the answer could be no, but the dead that emerge have no intention of accepting the sorcerer and his conspirators as servants and immediately slay them. It turns out that the old royals of ancient legend were actually demon-born, and they brutally subjugated and feasted upon the mortals beneath them. Time has obscured their true nature, although perhaps our hero discovered this hidden history on her adventures in some ruins, some 
hint of an old story about the old kings being overthrown and imprisoned and now she must fight to contain them and destroy the portal before they re-establish the old kingdom and begin consuming mortals anew. Or the answer could be no and the dead who emerge are an ancient race of powerful demonic nobles. They are far too strong to oppose and the best she can do at this stage is to lead a hurried evacuation of civilians, delaying the demons by collapsing a great bridge to the west after the people have escaped. One of our allies in the city, let's say the old guard captain, sacrifices himself by leading a charge against the demons to buy time. The city falls and she leads the survivors out into the wilderness. That's a cool setup for the next book in a series. She failed and there are big consequences to her failure. But she now finds her transformed from desperate fugitive to leader of the resistance. And... Any big antagonist she faces in that final act, any skills she relies on, any plot critical solution, all need to have been set up beforehand. Gun on the mantelpiece, remember? A note on downer or bad endings. These days, a good ending where the protagonist gets what they want or what they didn't realise they need is often viewed by some as being unrealistic, saccharine, childish or whatever. Often unliterary and certainly it's not gritty it's not grown up i let's just say i disagree but i will say make sure you're not trading off the tensions of a happy ending story if in fact you're writing a downer story or indeed a tragedy because in that classic plot shape where the protagonist sorts things out the protagonist gets themselves into a fix Every action they take to extricate themselves only ties the knot tighter. And then, just when the conflict is at its tightest, there's this stroke, this glorious reversal, where the puzzle is solved, the knot unties, and everything gets put back in its proper place. And the tension that's been propelling us towards that point is not, will they get out of this? But, how will they get out of this? This is the classic structure of a comedy. The wrong people are betrothed. The wrong son is going to get the inheritance. The school rugby trophy is missing. Creditors are threatening to close down the crumbling theatre if it doesn't have a hit. And the schemes launched to solve these problems only make things worse. But what must happen at the end, the implicit promise of the whole thing, the reason that we're hanging on, that we feel so tense, is, is this sublime moment of ironic reversal, which takes real ingenuity on behalf of the writers. So maybe, you know, like actually multiple problems come together and they unexpectedly provide answers to each other. So the, the brutal theatre critic falls in love with the wayward son and they elope, meaning the leading lady is now free to marry her co-star of humble means, who is so shocked by this development he falls through the rotting stage of the theatre and discovers underneath a hidden birth certificate confirming he is the earl's illegitimate son left at the stage door as a baby and therefore rightful heir to the fortune which he can use to save the theatre or something like that it's not satisfying to get to the end and just have everything left unresolved oh the critic writes a savage review the leading lady gets unhappily married to a feckless aristocrat while our hero loses his job his home and his love we wouldn't be like oh isn't that edgy and grimdark that's really unflinching and mature mature there's no challenge in that bad, bad endings like that require zero craft and, and and as readers we feel cheated the tension was entirely about how are they going to get out of this fix and that only works as a tension if we believe we're going to find the answer you are mortgaging the reader's goodwill on the promise of a final payment. This is precisely why 
I'm about to start a rant. The TV series Lost was such complete shit. It threw out all of these clues that made readers go, oh, what could this mean? Oh, J.J. Abrams. How are they going to resolve all this? And the answer was they're not because actually it's just random bullshit we made up. And do not email me explaining why actually Lost paid off on all of its promises or that I'm being unfair and I expect too much from people being played paid millions of dollars. Anyone who watched all of Lost and still thinks it was anything other than a massive, incompetent, con and festering cat turd has Stockholm Syndrome, frankly. To make a downer ending work, it it needs to be just as ingenious as a happy ending. The precise way things go wrong should come from an unexpected direction and then feel horribly inevitable. So in the example above, As long as we've had hints of this demon-born ruling class that were vanquished long ago, then when they appear and things go much worse than our hero could have anticipated, that is a satisfying twist. It's a downer, but it's a downer that advances the story, raises the stakes, transforms our hero, and means that nothing can ever be the same again. So, to recap. Make a clear promise on your first page about what kind of rewards your story is going to offer. Will it be plot, style, character, theme? Could be all four. Next, decide on a shape for your story. What's the rough organising principle behind it? Are you going to use the three-act structure? Are you going to use a more abstract literary shape? Finally, what's the big resolution of all this? And you might end up going back and changing the promise at the beginning of your story so it fits better with the payoff you end up hitting. So that's the promise, the pattern, the payoff. Slay those three dragons and your story will live happily ever after. And that's it for today. Thank you to all of you who've been writing to me via my website, timclapert.co.uk. If you'd like to get in touch, click on the contact me link on the right hand column of my website. My apologies if you wrote to me recently. I just realised, uh, thanks to a an eagle-eyed listener, that a bunch of messages have been landing in my spam folder. And so any that I got earlier than the last six days have been deleted. <laughs> spam folder i retrieved some but a few were doubtless lost so sorry if your missive was among them the problem's now sorted feel free to email away it's always lovely to hear from you and i'm so glad that so many of you are enjoying the couch to 80k writing boot camp if you haven't checked that out yet it's an eight week free course that um leads you through getting from wherever you are as a writer to feeling better about it feeling more energized feeling better about yourself and feeling more creative and getting you ready and match fit to write a novel I'm not going to go on about it too much, but the feedback is really good. You don't have to trust me. You can go on my coffee page. That's ko-fi.com forward slash Tim Clare and read some of the comments that people have made about it. People are really enjoying it and getting a lot out of it. And if you haven't tried it yet, feel free because it's free and it's going to be up there for as long as I can continue to pay hosting costs. So you can go over there and enjoy it and um, hopefully boost your writing a little bit and feel a bit better about yourself. If you enjoy the podcast, if you get value out of it, my sole call to action today is that you buy my novel, The Honours. If you've already got it, please buy one as a gift for someone else you love. I'm an author. Book sales are how I feed my family. I've put a link in the show notes if you want a super easy way to order a copy with free shipping. If you like what I do here, I think you'll like it. And a big thank you to everyone who's chipped in some money via my coffee page. That's ko-fi.com. It means a lot. Your kind messages mean a lot. And it helps me pay my bills and keep the podcast going. That's it. 
Thanks for listening this far. I sincerely wish you good fortune and a courageous heart as you continue with your writing. You are doing great. Take care.